0: to with a cat too. It's me, Quran 144, Friday, March 13th. So, latest update, yesterday, all public schools in Ontario were cancelled for
1: two weeks. Still checking in. It's Friday the 13th. Corona apocalypse is trending on Twitter. People are still panic by.
0: Hello everyone. This is Khadija chiming in. The date is Friday, March the 13th. My father has just told me not to touch him due to coronavirus concerns. Family has turned against family. It's serious out there. Be safe.
1: It 10:11, March 15. It's Dahil here. There's no milk in the city and people are going to St. Albert. Didn't think this would happen this fast, but here we are. Because half an hour ago, they were saying it's not that deep. Today is... January 17, 2021. It is day 362 of the pandemic. As the last year ended, there were 83.8 million cases and 1.82 million deaths globally. The new year started with more people receiving vaccinations.
2: Welcome to the Oboon Chronicles podcast. This podcast is hosted by five Black Muslim women, this is your girl, Sahra, the one and only non Canadian on this podcast. Join us every month as we talk about our personal experiences, pop culture, identity, and politics.
0: Sahra, to everyone. Welcome to the Avon Chronicles podcast. This is Ikran. We're back again with another episode. I'm here with my co host. <laughs>
2: Sada! Hey guys, welcome back uh, to our new episode. And today we have two guests. Would you like to introduce yourselves? I guess
3: I can go first. Uh, Assalamu alaikum. My name is Salma. I'm currently uh, a PhD student in immunology at the University of Toronto. I also have my master's in immunology, and I mainly work on mucosal immunity, so like gut immunology and antibody responses and how antibodies and bacteria work together. Uh, But lately, I've been kind of pivoted, like a lot of people, and doing some COVID-related work.
0: Cool. And our next guest is Fatah. You want to introduce yourself?
4: Yes, absolutely. Thank you for having us. My name is Fatah, everyone. Assalamu alaikum. I was, well, I'm still currently working for the both the urban Alliance on race relations where i've been supporting some of the work um, around uh, covid-19 and specifically looking at you know covid-19's impact on racialized communities and seeing the different in various ways that these racialized communities have been neglected and uh, providing supporting and providing programming for a lot of these uh community um i also in terms of my educational background i'm currently doing a master's in public policy and management i've also completed a graduate diploma in clinical epidemiology uh, from mcmaster uh so i guess i'll be kind of using that to kind of uh you know engage in in these discussions specifically uh, using my experiences working at city hall and were working on public health policy related portfolios and so yeah we're excited to participate today
0: we're so glad to have you both I guess um, now that you guys have given us your super cool backgrounds we can tell folks that so in this episode we'll be talking about COVID-19 in a more serious context we've kind of done this before like I remember last year when we when code first um, happened We're kind of joking about it. And then as we went on, I think we just talked about our personal experiences and like how the lockdown is going and Hafsa's perspective um, as a frontline worker. I think now that it's been around a year of kind of being like this being our new reality, we wanted to talk about it from a more scientific or more serious uh, context. And just talking about the vaccine because the vaccines also kind of been rolled out um all around the world and that's something that we wanted to discuss. So I'm excited to kind of be able to address these issues and talk about these topics with the both of you. So thank you both for joining us. Okay, so where do we start? So I think a lot of people already know what COVID is and things like that. But just for the context of the vaccine making sense, Asama, can you tell us a bit about like COVID its structure, how it infects people, and then, you know, how the vaccine works in general?
3: COVID-19 is what we're calling the pandemic we're in, but the actual causative agent, the virus that we're trying to fight is the SARS-CoV-2 virus. It's very similar in morphology to the SARS virus and the MERS virus um, that we saw, you know, 10, 12 years ago. Um, This virus, it causes respiratory illness. So, Depending on the person, it causes mild to severe uh, respiratory symptoms as well as a lot of like flu related symptoms. So things like headache, myalgia, fever, uh, nausea, congestion, diarrhea, um, a whole host of symptoms depending on the person really and, and their own uh, health background. In terms of the um, structure of the virus, like I said, it's like really similar to previous Um, coronaviruses that we've seen, but this one is a little bit more transmissible, which, uh, I guess is what's causing this such a severity with this pandemic. Well, it uses a specific protein, um, called the ACE2 receptor that's actually on a lot of your cells all over your body to enter your cells and then propagate itself and, um, and be able to, to produce progeny that will, you know, continue, that will end up in a long lasting infection, um, for that person. And so because the receptor that it uses to infect is located all over the body. That's why we see so many different types of symptoms with this virus. So, um, the receptors in your lungs uh, is in the, in your lungs in a really high concentration. So you see the respiratory symptoms and then you also see, um, a lot of gut related symptoms because those receptors are also along your intestinal lining. Depending on the person, lots of different symptoms. Some people have the virus or are carriers of the virus, but are asymptomatic. They won't even. Uh, experience any symptoms and those are even the more dangerous people uh, because that means you can be perfectly fine yourself and not know that you should be social distancing or anything but still be able to transmit the virus and so it makes it doubly important that we're following all of the public health protocols and, and guidelines that are provided to us to keep each other safe. Did I answer the question or did you have a second part to it?
0: No, no, that was phenomenal because I, I knew what the symptoms were, but I didn't realize that's why it was happening because the receptors were on all the, all these different cells and like the respiratory system and, and things like that. So I thought that was super informational. So I think, uh, what we'd like to know is like how our body responds to it and how the vaccine, because like we have a lot of questions about the vaccine, but I'm just going to let you kind of, um, tell us a bit about how the vaccine works and um and things like that
3: so what's really important to know in terms of how the vaccine works is that the virus can't survive without host cells if the virus doesn't have any cells to infect it can't do anything because it can't produce um, it can't reproduce itself without using your own cells to take advantage of their machinery so when someone's infected with covid19 or with the SARS-CoV-2 virus what happens is that the virus enters your cells, and then it uses um, proteins within those your cells to uh, to replicate itself, and then release itself out into your bloodstream, and it continues doing that until you have you know millions and millions of copies of that virus in your body. And what the vaccine does is the vaccine takes advantage of that fact and tricks your body into thinking it has the virus um, or that the virus has entered what happens is that it's not the virus reproducing itself it's your body making the viral protein so with a lot of other vaccines that we've had like if you get the flu vaccine or anything you've been vaccinated against when you were younger the vaccine is usually uh, an inactivated version of the virus and then so like the actual virus yeah exactly it's usually the actual virus like an inactivated version they inject that into you and then your body thinks it has whatever the virus is Um, And so it starts making antibodies against it. But what this does is it takes advantage of mRNA technology. And so what that is, is basically scientists were able to write the code for just one protein of the virus. So the virus is made up of tons of proteins, but they took one protein, the one that it uses to enter your cells, and they figured out the code for it, and then they packaged that code, And that's what's in the vaccine. And so when they, when you get the injection, your cells see this code. It's the mRNA code. And your cells, you know, they're machines. They think, I see mRNA. I'm going to turn it into protein. And so your cell turns that mRNA into protein and then releases it. But then what happens is your immune system sees that protein and thinks, that's not from my own genetic code. It's something foreign. And so your immune system attacks it and starts making antibodies against it. And those antibodies stay in your, they just live forever um, in memory cells. And then if you were to ever come into contact with the actual virus, you already have all of those antibodies and cells that can attack it for you. So basically, it's the mRNA vaccine works to trick your body into making the viral proteins instead of actually giving you the virus and then having your immune system react to that.
0: I know that mRNA codes for protein. Mm-hmm. So they're putting the mRNA, but the protein, what exactly, like it's a it's the virus's protein right Mm -hmm. but so your body is just making like a protein is it remaking the virus like what exactly yeah like is it just the protein and then is a is a protein like what's usually on the virus or in the virus or like what exactly Mm um how's that okay
3: so the the virus is made up of a few different types of proteins plus its own genetic code so all those things together make up the virus but what the vaccine does is it makes only one of those proteins. Only the spike protein that's on the outside of the virus. Your The vaccine makes your cells make only that protein. So you're not actually making the virus. You don't have any viral particles in your body. Just that one protein.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. That yeah. makes sense. Sahra, do you have any questions about that? Or Fatah? <laughs>
2: um, no. That was very clear. As a person from a non-science background, that made a lot of sense. But one question, though, regarding the vaccine. So the common thing you see a lot on TV and stuff is, like, uh, should you get vaccinated even if you already had the virus? Or, like, should you already get the vaccine before even getting the virus? If that kind of makes sense. I've
3: been hearing that a lot, too, of people wondering if they have already been sick, if they should get vaccinated anyway. Because you would think if I've already been sick, I have natural immunity against it. But the thing is, with... Yeah. I would say yes, if you've already been sick, that you should still get the vaccine for a couple of reasons. One is that a lot of people think they were sick, but they don't know for sure if they were or not. They just, you know, think, well, there was this time, you know, at the beginning, I mean, we didn't really know what the virus was. And I had, I was super sick, sicker than I've ever been. And I think I'm pretty sure that was the time I had COVID. But the thing is, you don't actually know if you've had it unless you get your antibodies tested. And so you should just, you know, just to be on the safe side, get the vaccine. The other thing is that um, the same way symptoms are really variable depending on the person, the immunity to the virus is also quite variable. So um, studies that have been coming out about this have been showing that not everybody is mounting the same response to the virus. It just depends on it depends on who you are, really. Some people have uh, a stronger and more longer lasting response, and so because of that variability, you don't really know how protected you are. And so the vaccine can you know, be a helpful boost to make sure that you're properly protected. And the last thing is we actually just don't even know how long these natural antibodies last. So there's some studies, again, showing I think between seven to nine months is the average that the immunity lasts against it. Um, but we just don't know enough because it's only really been a year of the pandemic. So we don't know enough of the long term data and how long your natural immunity will last to it. And so, again, yeah, being on the safer side and and just taking care of yourself uh, and others around you, it's better to just get the vaccine.
0: So we're saying we don't know how long it lasts, but isn't like I think what is confusing to most people, uh, including myself, is why like when we get vaccines or when we get uh, when we get sick, we expect that um, the antibodies just last like now you're immune to that disease. Right. So why is it that? you know, like this one may only last for nine months and then you might get it again? Or um, is it just like the strength? Is it because maybe it didn't hit you as hard and your body didn't produce as much? Or like what exactly could cause it? Because I know there were cases where people were getting COVID a second time, like during the pandemic. So like, what what would be the reason for that?
3: Yeah. So reinfection is apparently a thing based on um, literature and what people are seeing. But Again, it's just like not been enough time for for scientists to actually know what the proper rate of reinfection is or what the risk factors could be to becoming reinfected uh, to the virus, with the virus. So in terms of how long the antibody response lasts, um, yeah, like exactly what you said, it has to do with how strong your response was the first time. And you don't know how strong, like you know that you got better if you did get better, but you don't know how long how strong that antibody was on the scale of how strong it could be, if that makes sense. You just know that you got mm-hmm. better. But we yeah, we just don't have enough long-term data about this virus um, and enough about the long-term effects of the virus. So like the closest we have is a year of data, which of course isn't enough to studying a disease. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's why it's, uh, I guess, confu- like it's confusing to think, you know, why would my natural... Immunity not last, but then um, the immu- the immunity against uh, the vaccine would last. But that's because the vaccine is tricking your body into making the protein, and then that's what your uh cells are responding to. Instead of you getting sick and then just having to fight this uphill battle. Ah, okay,
0: okay. So, uh, like, just to summarize, basically, um the mRNA, when that, like, that's the, what the vaccine is, and when your body is. your body just creates like the materials it needs to defend itself Mm -hmm. against the potential virus so it doesn't actually need to um fight anything it's Mm -hmm. just kind of creating the machinery type of thing and then once if you are exposed to the virus which you can be exposed to the virus Mm -hmm. and you're not immune to it then your body begins to fight it and it's just i guess with the recovery time just be faster? And I guess like the the impact of the virus just wouldn't be as bad as if you didn't have the vaccine?
3: Yeah, for sure. 100%. So the data coming out of the trials has been showing 90 to 95% effectiveness against severe symptoms. So basically, what that's saying is the people who got vaccinated are not experiencing severe respiratory distress. And that's, Mm -hmm. you know, the thing that's been killing people right Is um this these Mm -hmm. respiratory symptoms so if you can do something to protect yourself against that and make sure that you know for whatever reason even if you uh, end up becoming exposed to the vaccine and develop some symptoms i mean i'm sure everybody everybody would rather have a minor headache or minor fever for a couple days than like respiratory symptoms to the point that they're hospitalized right and so you want to give your body the chance to to be able to fight against this rather than becoming super weak and then fighting this uphill battle to gain natural immunity
0: okay mm-hmm.
3: and um on
2: that note uh, we should definitely move on to the public health sector of the uh episode vata you were mentioning that you're doing public health We wanted to ask you regarding COVID's impact on ethnic minorities and economically disadvantaged communities.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've kind of heard this uh, phrase and these in these terms that have been thrown around uh, in the media, uh, where you know we we know that COVID nineteen has exacerbated already existing uh, health inequalities, especially among. Uh, as you said, you know, racialized and ethnic communities. Uh, and so if you think about the pandemic, it's almost has, uh, it has almost acted like uh, this kind of social x-ray, right? So you imagine the the society as kind of being one body, right? And so the pandemic has shined a light on some of the uh, kind of pre-existing health inequalities that have uh, been lingering for many years, and we just haven't addressed it because of a lack of data, right? And now, because of the numbers, uh, because of the data that we've seen uh, from the states, you know that you know Black Americans, for example, are. Uh 2.2 or sorry around 2.3 times more likely uh, to die from the virus than their white than white Americans um, and then also within the you know indigenous uh, community um, and the Latino community and the Pacific Island Islanders in America also having you know uh, death rates mortality rates uh, twice that of white Americans you know it's uh, finally started to click with the Canadians for example and we began to collect race based data. Um, uh, what, uh, closer to around uh, May, May and April, or, or, or around the springtime. And what we what we saw was that, uh, you know, although uh, racialized communities, in, in, for example, in Toronto, uh, only make up 52% of the population, uh, 71% of hospitalized, hospitalizations and 82% of COVID-19 cases were amongst uh, racialized groups. And yeah, and so when we talk about uh, these uh, that COVID nineteen has disproportionately impacted, you know, racialized and ethnic communities. What we're talking about is it's impacted them in greater proportions than their makeup of uh, within these societies. So, for example, if Black Torontonians make up nine percent of all Torontonians, and we see that twenty percent of cases are you know from Black are Black Torontonians Black Torontoians make up twenty percent of the cases, then that's you know two that's quite high. It's, uh, it's it's greater than their proportion, and so this kind of highlights. Uh, again, the importance of uh, race-based uh, data collection. Right now, in Canada, the only two provinces that are collecting race-based data are uh, Ontario and Manitoba. You know, the fact that we also haven't put up, uh, in place significant changes to our response. So you would think, okay, we see these, we see these numbers. You think, okay, it's going to result in some changes. Um, but that that, that hasn't uh, been the case. You know, uh, data shouldn't be necessarily collected for the sake of collecting. It should be used to benefit the communities whose um, uh, whose data are being collected. And so we can't simply address the pandemic through biology. Of course, it's, uh, you know, Solomon did a fantastic job, at, you know, talking about the vaccine um, and uh, its makeup and, and also its, you know, its efficacy from prior studies. Um, but, you know, we can't necessarily jab away uh, these, uh, these health inequalities. They, they, they will require um, some significant... Uh, policy changes to improve the conditions for uh, you know indigenous and black communities
0: like it's so it's so upsetting to hear that like i know like we know obviously that like black and indigenous people are being significantly impacted by the virus just just to hear the numbers and like the percentages is really disappointing that even though they have this data and they're collecting this data they're not really using it
2: yeah and i just uh wanted to ask you like for our listeners who might not have a, a clue regarding what might be the risk factors um like do you know like kind of like over like generally what are the risk factors that are facing ethnic minorities right now in the west regarding the COVID, yeah.
4: Yeah, so there was actually a recent study that was done. Just to touch on kind of your points, um, Ikran, around kind of data collection, there's almost like this uh, this resistance to you know taking action on health equity. Um, and it is uh, unfortunate. And, you know, um, and Sahara, on, on to your point, um, there was actually a recent um, study that unveiled and revealed a lot of these kind of health inequities that have existed for, for a long time. And so we know that, for example, that, you know, South Asia, Black, and Indigenous Canadians are, are more likely uh, than their white counterparts to have multiple medical conditions, right? And these medical conditions, as we know, they increase uh, your likelihood of having, you know, severe outcomes when it comes to contracting COVID-19. And so, what are some of these medical conditions? You know, they're more likely uh, to have asthma, obesity, diabetes, you know, cardiovascular diseases, and so on and so forth. Then one might wonder, okay, what is causing uh, these discrepancies, what is causing these disparities. And so we kind of look to the social determinants of health. Uh, so, you know, the social, the economic factors uh, that influence our health and you know the social determinants of health you know you might have heard this these are the conditions in which we uh we live and work uh so factors such as employment and working conditions factors such as uh one's ability to get an education access to healthy foods e- even poverty uh and so these factors are linked uh, and are essentially the causes of a lot of these uh, health inequities and why we call it inequities instead of inequalities you know you might have seen that famous illustration you know disc- uh, comparing uh, equality to equity uh, right so equality is is more so referring to uh, sameness so a lot of these politicians would uh, who are against Or or hesitant to uh, collect these race-based data would say like no, you know we're we're looking we're looking we're trying to look after all all Brits or all Americans or all Canadians right Um, we're not we're not looking to provide personalized care or support to certain communities and we know that uh, those supports are needed in order to build a more equitable society and equity is referring to fairness and justice so equity these are health inequities because uh, so these are all health inequalities, right? These are uh, differences that we're seeing for these racialized and ethnic communities, uh, but they become inequities uh, because a lot of these are unavoidable, right? They're they're unfair, they're unjust, and they are avoid- avoidable, which makes some um, health inequities. And um, and in, in terms of like you know why we're seeing these uh, disparities, um, especially right now. Uh, You know, during the pandemic, all these factors can be attributed to um, you know uh, um, ethnic communities being overrepresented among frontline and essential workers. Um, Also, ethnic communities are more likely to live in larger households uh, that are also multi generational, uh, meaning there are multiple generations living under one roof. And uh, we know that uh, those who are older are, are kind of more susceptible to worse health outcomes. So that can be quite problematic. Um, you know, these, uh, these essential workers, um, you know, obviously, and they're also precarious work, workers. So, you know, they're, they're, Income sources are not necessarily stable, and so they have to go out and travel. And so, when we look at when we when we look at the kind of measures that are being put in place, uh, we're being asked by health professionals and politicians to socially distance, uh, to wear masks, and and of course, you know, it's easier to wear masks and socially distance for a lot of these um, communities and all of these ethnic and racialized communities, whereby they have to go out and, and work and survive. But going out and working in these conditions means that they're more exposed, more likely to be exposed to the virus. And that's another factor, you know, they're more likely to be to be employed and working closely in contact with others and therefore more likely to be exposed to the virus. And lastly, you know, they're just more likely to also have um, a low, lower socioeconomic status that can uh, also explain the higher likelihood of living in uh, overcrowded conditions. So these are all factors that uh have uh, caused these disparities and uh, have ex- ex- again exacerbated worse health outcomes and I haven't even touched on you know the mental health and education and how this is really going to set back a lot of people um for a number of reasons right um like for example quickly educational attainment right if you look at schools um you know, schools. They. So, I mean, depending on the neighborhood that you live in, they they can do a good job in in reducing the educational um, the the kind of the differences in educational achievement between certain groups, right? So when you go to school, it's not just you getting an education, right? You have in some schools there are in certain nutrition programs, right? So you can also get you know your healthy foods in, in school. You know, you have social networks, you have a lot of things, and a lot of that be, being taken away from. From, especially those in in uh, lower income households, you know, they're not able to compensate for those services and those programings that are that were available to them whilst they were in school. So a lot of uh, a lot of issues uh, that, uh, um, that have come out into the foray, and hopefully we um, will not just go back to normal, but we'll improve these conditions uh, for good. And it and it starts with with policy changes and us also being advocates and you know putting pressure on our elected officials to see these numbers uh, as not just numbers, but these numbers represent stories and and real peoples and real lives that are being negatively affected.
0: So, like, as someone who works in City Hall, so also if you could briefly explain uh, what City Hall is, but how probable, like, how like, do you really see there being any changes with regards to any of this? Because a lot of these things are not things that, like we said, um, have existed pre-COVID. And obviously COVID just kind of like, you know, kind of sh- shone a light on all of it. So do you really think that we can actually see anything? Because at this point, it's like, you know, you're kind of like, telling us all the things that you know we we kind of knew what was happening but like we didn't know the extent to which it was happening uh, but now that you know there's more information out there do you see there being like any changes in how a lot of this stuff is addressed
4: Yeah so I mean with with politics okay so just um, to, to clarify so I, I I was I was working at City Hall uh, for a short time in the spring of last year for those who don't know what city hall. Oh, sorry. So city hall is uh, kind of a local government. So city of Toronto's—that's uh, kind of that's where their city council is. So there are local municipal politicians who make decisions that affect uh, just the local uh, city of Toronto. And uh, so they they make up a, a number of councillors and also the mayor of uh, Toronto. And we we know that, for example, public health, and this is the same across the board. Um, you know. Local government, the decisions that are being made in local government are usually decisions that uh, affect us quite closely. Um, you know, so decisions around public health, for example, you know, vaccinations, um, program, immunization programs, um, and, and things like that, um, you know, nutrition programs. A lot of the kind of the health promotion initiatives that you might see in your community are, are kind of mandated through, you know, these local public health, uh, units. Uh, and so, and, and so, you know, typically whenever there's a crisis, right? So, I mean, we're in a crisis right now. These are what these open, uh, kind of windows of opportunities for there to be change. And so, in order to see drastic change, There are certain ingredients, right? Um, one of them is, again, it is, it's a crisis. Uh, you know, for example, if there's an earthquake or hurricane, I'm sure when there was Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, there are a lot of changes that were made. And, and I'm sure after this, the world probably be a lot of changes that will be made, you know, for example, a lot of frontline um, uh, workers and essential workers are being provided with emergency kind of daycare services, for example, right? And a lot of these families otherwise would not have been able to afford that type of care. That's one area. We've provided technologies Uh, and I'm, I'm saying a lot of good things. For sure, there are a lot of, there are a lot of pitfalls, right? Uh, and we'll, we'll get to that in a sec. But in terms of like providing technologies for, for students who, you know, weren't able to afford them. That has enabled a lot of students to be able to work from home or sorry, to, to, you know, to do their education studies from home. Uh, so we have put in place a lot of different measures, but again, with, with politics and, you know, political turnover and elections that come around every four years, it's not an environment where the, the needs of the long-term needs of communities are addressed. And are prioritized. It's usually the short-term needs that are put on the policy agenda, and they are often what grabs the attentions of you know politicians. And you know, working at City Hall, um, I was working in the office of Councilor Joe Cressy, who is currently the chair of the Board of Health, and he's a strong advocate for having a health equity focus in our in our policymaking. Um, and you know, he's someone who tweets and talks about it all the time in media. And uh, unfortunately, there aren't enough. Of people like him, right? And so you need more advocates, you need more people uh, to shine a light on these numbers and to uh, bring about changes. But you need pressure from all sides, right? You need pressure from the constituents, you need pressure from media, you need pressure from private interest groups. Um, And so you know politicians again are just are swayed based on their environment so i i am optimistic and uh we'll kind of see what what happens but this is a definitely a moment momentous moment and we should definitely use this momentum uh to push for those types of changes
0: this whole pandemic has been really unfortunate and has you know hasn't been the best thing but like it really allowed us to focus on things and like I remember reading a quote, like, we can't return to the inequity of normal. We, like, I don't think it's worth it to go back to what we were at before this because, like you said, like, the daycare services, the, the devices, a lot of the families never had that before and they needed them for school. But now because, you know, they're doing online schooling, it's, um, it's something that they needed more and, and just kind of like, the normal wasn't equitable in any way. And so right now, like everyone was kind of forced to um, adjust and, you know, accommodate a little more. Like obviously they didn't do that, but like they didn't do everything right, but they were forced to accommodate and recognize some of the gaps in a lot of, like, in healthcare and education and things like that, so.
2: And, um, regarding, um, one thing that we've all noticed, uh, during the pandemic was this spread of misinformation, Mm. you know, the WhatsApp aunties were sending a little bit, you know, hey, you you know, ginger a little black seed oil you yeah, get to go
0: the one where they're like just heat up water and put lemon in it and just inhale it and it like yeah kills and like steaming in the
2: back of, <laughs> in your nasal cavity <laughs> exactly like steaming a little, little bucket and it's something that we all see like throughout different ethnicities whether it's africans asians like you know, this, you know, WhatsApp being a big uh, platform for misinformation. Mm-hmm. So, like, um, one thing, you guys both, Sanma and Ibn Khan, Fatah, like, you guys could put in some input. Um, are they justified? Or, like, the fact that our parents' generation out here, you know, not really believing in vaccination and stuff like that?
0: And whose fault is it for all this misinformation? Is it really their fault?
2: Yeah, th- th- obviously it's not, cause I feel like they've gone through a lot when it comes to vaccinations,
3: you know, anti-vax. Uh. Yeah, honestly, okay, so yeah, I've seen that too, Sahada, what you're talking about, the, um, like just the videos of random fixes for, for illness. Like, it, do you remember in the beginning when, like earlier in the year when Trump was saying something about inject bleach and like, or like sit in the mm-hmm. sun? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah like, it's not any better than I'm any of dead. that um but uh i i think it come also brought up a, a really good point of whose fault is it because like yes it's like spreading of incorrect information is wrong and if we as people if we as like the younger generation see that that's happening it's our job To educate ourselves first and then to make the information accessible to our parents and and others who might be mistrustful of the system or of vaccines in general. Um, because it's, it is like, it's not a black and white of whose fault is it because we can't blame people for mistrusting a system that has, has ignored them forever, right? And has mistreated them and has, you know, not taken their illnesses seriously and like, like it's it's built in a way where like the system is not built for us and it's always been built this way so we can't blame people for mistrusting such a system but at the same time uh the science is not separate from that system like of course it, it like all woven in together but the science stands for itself and I think it's up to us as the younger generation to like when we see that it's not funny like don't like you know laugh at your parents like haha like that's wrong and then let it go um it's really our job to educate ourselves first and then after that um make it accessible to them and like figure out exactly what is it that you don't trust about it maybe they just don't understand what it is so then teach yourself or you know have someone teach it to you and then explain it to your parents um in a language that they understand or is it that they you know, are afraid of certain um, side effects or, you know, they've heard something and, and they believed it and they're, now they're afraid of it. So, you know, dispel that for them. Go look, figure out what it is they're talking about, figure out why it's wrong, and then explain that to them in a language that they understand. Like, But one thing we can't do, I think for sure, is, is um, when we see it, to just ignore it and laugh it off and be like, oh, they're never going to change their mind. Um, because, yeah, because then it just keeps getting passed on.
4: Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, you told me, you, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head, really. Um, I think first and foremost, like you said, you know, it's important to acknowledge, uh, that there is skepticism and to acknowledge that there is a lot of mistrust, um, in healthcare and, and and once you acknowledge it, you know you kind of dispel these misconceptions and these myths in a compassionate manner, right? It's not. It's important to do so with uh, compassion because you know there are a number of reasons as to why you know people are vaccine hesitant, right? Like some of you kind of alluded to, you touched on it. You know, there's a long uh, legacy of uh, discrimination and racism, um, you know, in in healthcare settings uh, that a lot of BIPOC. Communities have faced and and so mistrust. There's a lot of you know good reason for there to be mistrust you know from from their perspective. And if you look at you know the information that is being shared around, right? I actually I was going to you know pass this on to uh to to some of you. You know I actually saw a video recently. I'll share it in a a family group chat. Um, And um, I saw I saw it yesterday, and it was. It was someone from the UK, you know, brother from the UK. I won't give too much details, but uh, essentially, what they were referring to uh, were these numbers, right? These like scary numbers of, like, you know, uh, you know, almost nearly three percent of people uh, up until now uh who well, I don't know exactly up until when, but uh who have gotten the vaccine and who have uh faced, you know, adverse effects, right? And these adverse effects can range from a number of things like fever, you know, low grade fever, headache, things like that. Uh but in, in this particular case it was, you know, individuals who um, you know, either uh were 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 not able to engage in their normal daily activities for a day, I don't know how long. But they were blowing that number out of proportion. And when I looked into it, I found that, you know, what the numbers that they were looking at are are self-reported numbers um, through an app, right? So through this technology uh, in the United States, I think it's called v Space or something. And so, and only 40% of people were reporting um, their, their cases, uh, reporting their illnesses, and there's no way of kind of verifying it, right? And so you always have to, like, look into certain things that are being, um, you know, passed around. And if you look into it further, uh, you'll see that, yes, of course, there is uh uh, there might be some room for caution, but you kind of look back to okay, what are the what are the clinicians uh, and scientists say? What what are the kind of the numbers that we're seeing from these clinical trials uh, that are in you know these multiple country settings? Uh, but yeah, so uh, you know there are also sort of cultural factors too, you know that influence people's hesitancy, um, religious factors too. So uh, yeah, doing it with with compassion and acknowledging it, and not just not just dismissing it is, is important. The
3: thing about like seeing numbers and, um, you know, getting afraid of that. So there's a thing in psychology, I think it's called availability heuristic. I might be wrong, but I think that's what it's called, um, where you are like you overestimate the likelihood of something happening because of how much you see it. So like, for example, a lot more people are afraid of getting on a plane than they are of getting in a car, even though you're... Far, far more likely to get hurt in a car accident than you are in a plane accident. But that's because every time a plane crashes, it's on the news, but you don't see the thousands of car accidents on the news every day. So it's like, it, it makes it seem like the probability of a plane crashing is higher than it is, right? Um, and so when we see numbers like that, it's um, it's the same thing. Like you you see like you know a thousand people had like a, a severe symptom afterwards or something, and that's a scary number. A thousand people, like it seems like a lot, but then when you actually look into it, like exactly what Fatah was just saying, it's it's really the percentage is something so minuscule that the probability is like you can make it. You can it's like almost zero what the probability is. Um, there was. A paper that the CDC put out, I think in late December, where at that point there were around 1.9 million Americans that were vaccinated, and then the paper said 4,000 people had, um, side effects that they, like, were reporting about in this paper. And so if you see that, like, it was 4,000 or 4,100, something like that, um, it seems like a lot of people, that's, that's a lot of people to uh, have symptoms after the vaccine, right? But then, when you, you look into it and you read the paper more and they break it down, it's minuscule. So 4,100 out of 1.9 people is already around 0.2%, 1.9 million people, yeah. So it's around, it's less than half a percent. It's around like 0.2 or 0.3%. So that's already like so low. And then on top of that, the CDC has to, um, report every side effect. So there's side effects in there that are like, oh, my arm was sore afterwards. you know what I mean? But they ha- so that's everybody in there wasn't actually like uh, affected terribly. They weren't um, like bedridden or anything like that. And then when you when you break it down that 4100 even more, it was 175 of those people had um, allergic reactions to the vaccine. but those allergic reactions could be like I had an itch or like I had one or two hives to anaphylaxis. So when you break it down even more, it was like 21 had anaphylaxis. And then, so that's 11 people out of one. So for every million, 11 people had anaphylaxis. But when they followed up with those 21 people, it was that 80% of them had live their whole lives with very severe allergies. Like, I'm not talking about like you have, you know, a pollen allergy or you're, you know what I mean? Like you get itchy when you're in grass or something like they had severe, severe, severe allergies to multiple food groups and multiple drugs. So already the percentage of having an allergic reaction is, or the probability is 11 people out of every million. And then on top of that, most of those people were people who live their lives with severe allergies. So if you didn't live your life with severe allergy, you're probably not going to be in that 11 out of a million.
0: I think that's what it is, right? Like, first of all, there's a lot of misinformation. And then when there is information that's legitimate, we only get like a, a very small part of it. Like some of we will probably see that 4,000 number, but we won't see that in 1.9 million, right, and like that's part of the problem. And like as we were just talking about, like the misinformation, instead of uh, mentioning the WhatsApp aunties and stuff like that, I just thought to myself, like honestly, I think like our community and like our elders and a lot of people who are kind of taking in a lot of this false information just want something they can understand. Because when you look at the kind of videos that they share, they're very well explained. Um, like, and if you don't really have a science background or have like not even science but like a medical background or anything that you know um a lot of it will make sense to you and will seem legitimate you know what i mean like you'll watch these videos and you'll be like yeah this could totally be true and like a lot of these people who are spreading this false information in these videos are very considerate to people's understanding levels and explain it in ways that's very easily digestible right and so i think like that's a problem is a lot of like a lot of the scientists and a lot of um like science science communication is very like I I'm in the sciences and honestly I hate it. I think a lot of people um and I always talk about this but I think there's a really big issue with communicating the science and explaining it to people who have different backgrounds and like people especially in the sciences are not equipped to speak to the general population like they usually won't know how to speak to people within the field because a lot of it is like jargon and it's like if you're not in it you're not going to understand it and they don't know how to explain it to the general population in a way that they will understand it and I think that that has a big like in my opinion at least um, I feel like that has a big thing to do with all the misinformation that's happening and why like our parents don't like well not the don't trust the vaccine but why they think you know like these treatments or these you know remedies are enough to cure it like i completely understand like with our islamic background we have to keep in mind that like like honey and all these things are definitely um good for helping like strengthen our immune system but it's not gonna like keep covid away from you but i don't know while we were talking that's just something that i was thinking about is how well explained these videos are because wallahi if I didn't know that they were lies, I would believe it. Like I, like oh, like you're telling me you can inhale steam with lemon and it's gonna kill the virus. Like okay, that kind of could happen. I don't know. And they have like proper
3: visuals and everything.
0: <laughs> yes, they literally like will give you animations or like they'll explain it to you. Like oh, cause you inhale it and the lemon. Like it's just very. They do a really good job, and I think maybe it's time for like, you know, people in science to do a better job explaining it to the general population. That's just something that I've always thought and I feel like with the pandemic it just kind of made it worse. But with regards to like the vaccine hesitancy as well, especially with the mistrust that our community faces because, you know, like how do we trust these people? Like like they're letting people die. So like fatah said the numbers of the people impacted by covid are mostly black and brown and indigenous people um and then now they are bringing this vaccine not explaining how it works right and then they expect the same people who are hit the hardest to just accept what the government is saying and take the vaccine so like what do you guys think as a community is something that can be done to kind of address that because a lot of people are hesitant about the vaccine myself included like i'm, I'm more open to it now that I, I feel like with more information and understanding how the virus works i'm like more open to it obviously like i'm still kind of you know i probably wouldn't get it anytime soon anyways because of the number of people but kind of waiting it out to see but like now with more information i'm more open to it than i was like two months ago but how do you get people to understand the vaccine so Salma and Fatah like what do you guys think um is uh is a way to kind of bridge the gap and things like that
3: yeah I I completely I think you you really explained it really well when you were talking about um you know it's like it's easy for people who are, who maybe don't have a science background to just believe the things that they see that make sense because it's in a language that they understand, right? And, um, these politicians, like you're right, they're not, they're on, already not doing anything for certain communities. And then on top of that, they are just expecting people to take this vaccine without explaining it to them, which is totally not right. Like, it's, it's a, it's a smart thing to be hesitant. It's like, you know, don't let anybody think you're dumb or like, you know, uneducated, or whatever for, for being hesitant about something you don't know about. But then after that, like exactly what we were just saying before, it's up to, I think us as a community to be able to put this information into a language that others and our parents and whatever can understand. Um, because they're like the politicians aren't going to do it. You know, the, a lot of scientists I've seen like in the media, on the news and stuff are trying really hard to disseminate the information um, in a way that everybody can understand it. But It's not enough because those scientists don't come from our background, right? And so when we're people who who come from this background and who are in it and understand it, um, it's up to us really to put it into a language that our parents and and anybody else who might be hesitant can understand.
4: Yeah. And yeah, to add on to that, I mean... It starts with the marketing aspect to it too, right? So there were kind of these terms again being thrown around, such as, you know, operational warp speed. This term, you know, was, is using, was using the Toronto Star uh, to describe. Uh, essentially how fast paced and how quickly we were able to put together these vac, this vaccine. And when someone hears that, of course, you know, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised as to why they would be hesitant. Because if I hear something like Operation Warp Speed, um, you know, it, it, it gets me thinking, okay, you know, they, they put together this vaccine so quickly, you know, why, you know, what could the potential complications uh, Be and what, uh, what are some things that were missed? Cause, you know, generally when you do something quickly, you know, you, uh, might compensate for and you might dismiss quality. You know, that's what someone might, might think. And, um, with you know, scientists and, um, these subject matter experts aren't generally, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. They're not generally incentivized to distill information in a way that's digestible to the wider community, you know, if you look at some of these papers, even I have, I have, I'm, I mean, I'm sure you all are, are used to reading a lot of these, you know, scientific literature and these scientific papers, and I have to go through the results and method section, like, a good number of times before I understand, you know, what's being said and, uh, and, and the context in which these studies were conducted, because, like, when you were sharing all those numbers, Salma, You know, a lot of that information is not in like the abstract or it's not in, it's not in the summary of these studies. It's like deep in within the paper. And if you don't have, uh, that, that background and you're not able to critique these studies, then, you know, a lot of that content is missed. And again, scientists, a lot of them are not incentivized to do this work, right? They're not paid to do this work, right? These are, this is, this should be, um, this should be something that is like incorporated into, I guess, if you look at, financial incentives, maybe their salaries, or maybe there are certain people whose job it is just to translate this knowledge, you know, knowledge translation experts. Um, and, and yeah, if you, and and those videos that cause people to be skeptical are tapping into people's emotions, right? And so if, if you, if you, you have to figure out a way to kind of counter that, and of course you don't have to also tap into people's emotions to do that, but if you can simply make this Again, content digestible, easily understandable, and use people who use people within the community who people, these communities already trust, such as community leaders. Um, I think I read somewhere that, you know, people trust their pharmacists, you know, a lot more than, uh, you know, their, 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 well, I don't know if it's in comparison to their physicians, but people trust their pharmacists, for example. So use people within the community who individuals already trust um, as a, as kind of like an entry point into, you know, changing um, the minds of, uh, of people. And, uh, and also society itself, it's, it's very contradictory that, you know, we. Put these individualistic um values and we we tell people to think for themselves um and then at the you know at the turn of a second we and uh, we expect them to also have these collectivist ideals and these values to think about their neighbors to think about everyone else and get the vaccine and so it's like almost as if like okay so you want us to kind of have these two brains and to kind of switch in between them when we're asked to and we're called upon to um uh but um um, yeah, so these values should just be instilled and should be obvious to everyone that you know politicians have everyone's best interests in mind, and that isn't necessarily the case when you look at policymaking. When you look at communities that have been neglected, um, so there are a number of ways to tackle this. Uh, I guess the easiest way is to make content information more easily accessible to people.
0: Yeah, I think I think everyone kind of hit the nail on the head with that one. I hope. I guess I go. I just hope going forward we're able to kind of. Do better, um, and like those of us who do have the information, are able to, you know, share that in a way that you know is digestible to those around us. I guess it's like everyone's responsibility to at least share it with whoever is around them. But I guess for now, now that we've talked, there's so many things that honestly we wanted to cover, but for the sake of time, we'll go into the Curious Cat questions. Some of the questions, so we've gotten um, a lot of questions. Some of them I think we've already addressed. So. Um, yeah, so for the sake of... We could just kind of skip some of the questions that we've addressed. Sarah, so you can go ahead and highlight them. And I'll just start with the first question for now. Um, I think we kind of talked about this, but just I guess like this question is more like... Um, I feel like it just asks a more concise question. So they said the vac. So this person... One person actually sent 19 questions. Wow. So we're going to go uh, in... <laughs> Yeah, all these questions. I don't know if you guys can see so this.
2: dedicated. But these are
0: all like literally questions that I was like, okay, I want to know the answer to this too. So they're all really, most of them are really good questions. Um, so the first one is, the vaccine is different from other vaccines containing mRNA. What does it mean? And is it safe?
3: Yeah, so um, so this technology, um, and this actually is great that you guys started this question, because I want to talk about Operation Warp Speed. So this mRNA technology, um, it's not something new. It's been in the works. A lot of scientists and labs all over the world have been working on this for years and years and years and years. Um, it's just that now we finally were able to stabilize it in a way where it could be used. So actually, after the um, SARS, I think after the SARS or MERS virus, one of those two, but about 10 years ago, they started working on... Um, on this technology for coronaviruses. And then for this, uh, for this current coronavirus, um, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, they just uh, basically modified the platform that they had made. So they worked on this platform for years and years, finally got it working, and then just slightly modified it so that it would express the protein from this current virus. So it's not something new. It's not something that's been happening like that, you know, within a year was developed. Um, so I don't know if that makes anybody feel better about the time of it. Um, but it was definitely in the works for years and years. It just needed some slight modification for, um, for this specific virus. Um, yeah. And actually there's literature showing that if this virus, the one we're dealing with now came up 10 years ago, there's literally no way we would be able to have a vaccine this quickly because it, literally took the platform it needed the platform that people have been working on since the SARS virus
0: see that's the kind of information we don't know so see that was one of my issues too so the next question I mean you've answered it but it was like it was the vaccine was developed in a short period of time compared to others does rushing the vaccine mean it could be harmful and like that's literally like what everyone was thinking right like okay what good prod like what good vaccine could you could they have really done in a year because this pandemic has been for a year right and we assume they started working on it even if you're being super optimistic you would assume they're they started working on it on date like mm-hmm. the first day right and you're just kind of like okay it doesn't seem practical but like the fact that they don't say that this has been like i don't see it like i don't see it publicized yeah. a lot right that this is actually not something that they've worked on for just a year and that it's been a work in progress and i think yeah. it's things like that that they think they don't need to reassure us with but is really the deciding factor on whether a lot of people take the vaccine because a lot of people are just scared. It's like, oh, we can dig dig in, like this is just something that they did in a year. How could it be good? But yeah, you answer that really well.
3: There's a podcast called This American Life and one of their recent episodes, um, the episode's titled Boulder Boulder V Hill. Um and they actually for the second half of the episode talked to the scientist who came up with this technology, who's been working on it for years and years. Um And then talk about, like, his whole experience of how long it took to figure it out and then getting it licensed from people like Pfizer and and um, Moderna. So if you guys – I don't know if it's, this is helpful for people, but if you want, like, a little bit even more detail on how long it actually took and the science that went behind it, but, like, kind of geared towards a non-science background – um, that's a really good
0: episode to check out. That's amazing. I'll take that link from you and add it to the description for once we release the episode.
3: So th- should the
2: vaccine become mandatory if it's proven to be safe?
4: Um, in terms of making it mandatory, so one thing that I had to do uh, when I started working at uh, in my internship at City Hall was kind of doing some digging and research into what other jurisdictions have done to uh, curtail vaccine hesitancy. And so, you know, some... Uh, jurisdictions have had like laws around ensuring that there isn't uh, like there's certain consequences for misinformation that are being shared Um, and then other countries have actually not focused on misinformation but have focused on um, providing financial incentives for people to take vaccines so I think in Australia there's this program called no jab no pay if I can remember correctly which is I mean you can kind of guess what it means you know if you don't get the vaccine you won't get paid and what are they referring to they're they're, they've tied uh getting vaccination getting vaccinated uh with also getting access to certain uh types of social welfare or welfare programs uh and like certain certain financial payments that are 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 given to uh certain segments of the population uh that are in need of, of funding and um uh economic support and so i would i would i would follow suit with kind of like what australia uh, has done and and kind of tie it to certain um financial incentives um maybe even go so far as to you know paying people to no that's that'd be quite costly i'm just kidding but uh i I would go I i would kind of use that because if you make it mandatory what you can also do is you can make it mandatory in certain settings um so instead of making it mandatory for for everyone, um, I don't know if that will cause some uh, you know talking about mistrust, right? You know, people uh, that might cause people to be even more skeptical. I would I would instead uh, make it mandatory to for certain settings, maybe to access uh, certain services, maybe uh, give you know. Businesses uh, discretion uh, around this, you know, not letting people into their establishments unless they've gotten vaccinated, not letting people back into schools mm-hmm, yeah. in particular unless they've gotten vaccinated. So any uh, any any places where you're more likely to have, to, where, where there's where people are more likely to be, um, kind of densely where where there's more likely to be people. Um, to sorry, where there where people are more likely to congregate and to be uh, in close proximity to one another and and therefore uh, be more likely to be exposed to yeah. the vaccine or sorry yeah. to the virus, I would I would make it mandatory in in those settings. You know, just a broad sweep uh, and and making mandatory for everyone might cause p- problems. I don't know if we've ever done that in in the past, um, but that is something that. Uh, you know, it would, would, would be something that I, uh, you would have to think hard about.
2: Because I know Qantas, uh, the airline, the Australian airline company, they have, they have been saying, like, oh, we're going to make it mandatory for you to have a vaccine done before you're able to travel on our I think airline. The,
0: I, I think no one should be allowed to travel. Like, maybe not mandatory, but you, yeah. like uh, Fatah said, I don't think you should be able to access certain mm-hmm. things. Like, you shouldn't be able to travel Um if you don't get the vaccine. Yeah. Like, okay, you don't want to get it, but don't travel um,
2: but then won't people who already are quite skeptic think, like, oh my god, everybody's against us, think that everybody's about to get them, if that makes I sense.
0: Know. I just think, like, as a community, because, like, vaccines really are just as effective as how many people take it, right? Like, so, if we... Yeah. I don't know, because, like, it's, like, herd immunity, right? So, we need to all be yeah. taking it in order to kind of tackle this thing. And so, like, even if it's not made yeah. mandatory, like, I don't know... Like with especially like right now, again, with the misinformation, like it's going to take time for people to really understand it. So I wouldn't force anyone to take it if they're not comfortable. But I do think like if you're working with vulnerable populations and it kind of has to be mandatory in a way, you know, like if you're working in a nursing home, if you're working with people who could die because of these diseases, then maybe you should. If you're traveling, like I don't think you should be traveling to different countries who, for example, have eliminated the virus you know what i mean or like not just those countries but in general i just think like it's traveling that really got us this way right like if you want to have the freedom to make the decision go ahead but there's certain luxuries you shouldn't be able to partake in if it's going to harm other people.
4: Absolutely. Yeah, if, if if you not taking it is going to put other people in harm's way, then it would absolutely have to be mandatory, especially, like you said, if you are in close contact with vulnerable populations. Um, and being in such a globalized world, I mean, that's kind of how this whole pandemic spread. And, um, you know, this pandemic is testament to the the fact that, you know, we can easily affect other people with decisions that we make. And so, yeah, it would it would need to be kind of mandatory in those uh particular situations
2: yeah so the other question that kind of relates to everything is how should you react uh in the awkward moment when someone reaches out for a handshake but you want none of that rona without being rude (laughs) put your hand on your chest you know
0: i feel like during this pandemic like if you try to shake someone's hand that that's you that's them being like, it's so weird, right? Like, I don't know. I haven't really seen people yeah. trying to go for handshakes and hugs, which I personally love. <laughs> um, But, uh, mm. yeah, I think it would be weird if people started, ch- especially yeah. now. Like, it's like we live in a pandemic. Yeah. I think they'll probably feel more awkward at that point, right? Yeah. No,
3: they yeah. have to read the room. Yeah. We're in a pandemic. <laughs> like, you can't be giving out your hands. <laughs> read <Yeah>. the situation. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
4: The amount of people that I've come across that have just been comfortable with that is just, just, just far too many. I've, I've just been shocked at how many people have just uh, been comfortable reaching really? out. Uh, <laughs> yeah, to me in, in particular. I mean, I guess, you know, people are are, are craving, you know, that social mm-hmm. connection. You know, I don't know if yeah. they've had that physical contact in a while. I don't know what it is. <laughs> but, yes. uh But uh, yeah, I uh, I understand it. But at the same time, you know, just you know, just give it, give us some more time. Just be patient with one another, and you know, we'll inshallah get to a a point where we'll be able to give as many hugs people as we want. Um,
0: the next question is more like on the mental health aspect. I think if I rephrase this question, I said I think they're saying that families have spent a lot of time together this year than previous years and so going forward how can we foster a healthy mental environment during the panoramic (laughs) I don't even know
3: (laughs) this is an American panoramic (laughs) I mean this is hard right like people have been stuck together like couples, families like people with their kids they've been stuck and they can't like all the escapes that you would normally have you know if you want to go out one night or going to school or work like you suddenly lost all of that and then you're just, you're faced to have to deal with things if the home environment isn't um, like a, a, a healthy home environment. Um, that's really tough. I mean, I don't like to give mental health advice because I'm not a mental health yeah. expert. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah, no, you could just speak on how you, I guess, like personally, I guess none of mm-hmm. us are experts, so I think this is just from a personal
3: perspective. Yeah, Honestly, like, you just have to find the things that well, like, for me, alhamdulillah, like, I feel blessed that I get along with my family and that that hasn't been an issue of, like, I've gotten, like, it's been hard to stay with them. Um, but at mm-hmm. the same time, like, of course, you can't be around the same people 24-7 and, like, not lose your mind, kind of. You need your alone time. You need your alone space. And I'm definitely someone who's like that. And so... Um, like it's not like with friends or colleagues you can say like set boundaries because people are in your home (laughs) but if you can find those things that you know help you to escape whatever hobbies that you have if it's like reading art um music I don't know whatever you do that is like your own time your own space like being able to um Mm -hmm. to take advantage of that um going on walks and you know I mean we've been hearing this advice since March but going on walks and like having that um, that time just to yourself and, uh, and being able to just be with yourself, I guess, and have your own thoughts is, um, probably the best thing. But at the same time, like, it's not helpful for anybody to sweep things under the rug. So if there's really an issue and you feel like if it's not addressed, like it's just making things harder for you, then maybe it would be worth it to, um, to, maybe this is the time, you know, to address these issues in, like, a really calm and compassionate manner. And, um, and deal with whatever is making it hard to be able to stay home. If that's possible, sometimes it's something that you can't control, but.
0: So the next question, um, is is it best to wait and watch for any side effects of the vaccine or take it ASAP?
3: Yeah, um, I mean, definitely I agree with, like, don't force yourself to do something you're not comfortable with doing. Um, but at the same time, the thing is that, Long, if you're waiting for long-term data, you're going to be waiting years. Um, and also the, like the people, the FDA, the people who are in charge of approving drugs, what they say is that the, is that for vaccines, 90% of bad outcomes happen within the first 40 days. And if they see that, then they won't approve the vaccine. But for all of the vaccines that have been approved right now, in those first 40 days, that ha- there haven't been any bad outcomes for any of the thousands of participants. Um, so that's like, you know, the data that we have now is that short term data. Um, and now those people have been vaccinated up to should be about six or seven months by now. Um, and so we haven't really seen any super reverse side effects. Um, but at the same time, so if you're waiting for long term data, then it's going to be years. Um, but and also if you're saying, well, I want to wait till I see more people who, I know like more people, I guess, like in my city get vaccinated and then I'll see if I want to get vaccinated. The thing is like thousands of people have already been vaccinated, regardless of where they are, regardless of if it was a trial or not, thousands have already been vaccinated. So if you're saying, I just want to wait and see what happens, like that's the data for wait and see what happens. And most people have been fine so far. Um And the other thing I just want to add is if, if we're all thinking this way of, of, uh, I'm going to like wait till next year or something. Um, I mean, I totally get it for people who are not around. People who are going to be staying home, whatever, then, you know, whatever, it's fine for you. But if the rest of us are thinking like that, then we're just never going to reach this point of herd protection. We're never going to reach this point of 70% of us getting vaccinated. And then this is never going to go away. <laughs> so I don't know. It's really tough because it's like you can't force people, I guess. But then at the same time, if we don't, We're never going to get to a point where we can go back to normal again.
0: Regardless, like we're not even first in line unless you're like a frontline worker and things like that. So it's going to take a while for to even reach um, some of us. So, I mean, like you have that time to kind of, you know, keep an eye out and see what the side effects are, if that's what you're looking to do.
4: But I mean... Yeah. And are you willing to also wait for the, to see the long term effects of the virus itself? Oh, I mean, you don't know the long term effects of, of the virus itself. So would you, uh, would you, you know, place your bet or would you, uh, rather get one? Wouldn't you rather get the vaccine, um, and not have to, you know, uh, get the virus and, and potentially, you know, Suffer of some of those long-term effects. You know, there are certain uh, information has, you know been floating around around some of the uh, impacts that we're seeing with people who've gotten the virus and what it's done to seemingly healthy individuals. And so, you know, place your trust more so on. You know, of course, you know there is again. You know, you can be skeptical, you can be hesitant, but then do your research, re- listen to this podcast again, <laughs> you know, listen to all the things that, you know, Salma has shared and, you know, and others have shared and, you know, educate yourself and make informed decisions. You know, I, I would rather, you know, take the virus and not have to get the, get the, vi- sorry, take the vaccine, <laughs> take, take the vaccine, <laughs> take the vaccine, <laughs> take the vaccine. Uh, uh, which does not have the virus, take <laughs> the vaccine. And uh, instead of, you know, potentially getting the virus and, and seeing and, uh, you know, you don't know what, you know, don't know exactly what it can do for you. Um, and yeah, we've seen the data, we've seen the information, we've, ho- we've passed that 40 day threshold. You know, there's, uh, you know, we haven't had any deaths, but we've had a lot of people who unfortunately you know, died from the virus uh, itself. So yes, make that informed decision.
2: That's true. And uh, we have... Okay, this is a funny question, though. Um, I've heard that the COVID vaccine someones are taking is 0.5 ml of 7-up. Is it true? Or will it take me 7 feet under? <laughs> I don't know. This person like, I don't know. Because the person later on sends a question, says, on a scale of 1 to 19, how funny was question number 9?
4: I'd give it a 7 for 7-up. Did
2: you give it a 7 for 7-up? Seven <laughs> ginger I always always hear about the sauna like I feel like like exactly what you said um, uh, Kran like like lemon lemon lemongrass or something and then you're supposed to lie down on the floor and let the steam just get into your body and that's how you're gonna get rid of
0: literally I saw a video I think my mom sent it to me or someone sent it to me I was like (laughs) this is probably not true Um, but yeah exactly so funny
4: yeah, people um, just wanna uh, want some you know quick and easy solutions. Yeah, you know, people, quick Yeah, people want to take a pill that will solve all their problems and yeah. you know instead of having to go through exactly.
0: You know. So Asad, I was thinking so, for like the, there are a lot of questions left. I would just say we uh, skip them. There's just one last question that another person asked. I mean maybe we can um, Fatah and Sume. I can share the remaining question with you guys and then. Uh, we can maybe just answer it on Curious Cat and just send the answers to those questions for the sake of time. But for the last question, and this is something that I've actually heard a lot, um so i'm gonna bring it up and i want and like also like if we could just briefly talk about the new strain but the last question was uh can you talk about the long-term effects claims it affects fertility so i've heard this before is a vaccine effective against the uk covid and on the rest i think the, the last part is how do we discern between good information and what we should not listen to so if we could just like wrap it up with that last question that would be Great. Um,
3: So in terms of long-term effects, uh, honestly, there isn't enough known about them. All we know is that there is a very wide range of long-term effects. So there are neurological symptoms, like people have lost their uh, sense of taste and smell, um, there are a lot of people who have suffered heart damage, like really healthy young people who have suffered heart damage because of the virus. And so now they just have like arrhythmia or they have they get random heart palpitations. Um, there are uh, some long term gastrointestinal symptoms. So there's this wide range of long term symptoms, but we honestly just don't know enough about uh, why certain people have suffered long term symptoms and why others have, you know, had the, vac- had the virus for two to three weeks and then gotten over it. Um, in terms of, oh, infertility, I haven't personally read any literature about that, but like, I'm sure it's possible considering how wide the range is. Um, but again, that's like just more evidence of why we need to really do our best to like do our part, all of us to make sure that we don't get sick and those around us don't get sick. Cause if you think, oh, I'm going to be sick for two weeks and then I'm going to get better. Like this is really evidence that for a lot of people, especially young, healthy people, that's not the case.
0: I think the fertility question was about the vaccine because I've heard people who say that they think the vaccine affects fertility oh, so I think that's the yeah. yeah but I don't know where like I don't know I don't know who started that because like like I haven't seen literature I haven't heard but it seems like another um, way to kind of like yeah. fear monger or something because uh, I don't know where that yeah, came so, from
3: I mean usually when I hear of people I mean so the vaccine it's not going to the way it would affect fertility would be to affect your germinal cells, but that's not how vaccines work. So you don't have to worry about that. Like that is probably, it's not a, a side effect of this vaccine. Um, in terms of the new ver- uh, UK variant, um, there is a new mutation. So it's, it's super normal for viruses to mutate. They mutate all the time. And the thing is that some mutations, like it happens all the time, like thousands of times a day, but those, some mutations are just like, not strong enough for the virus to continue on with that mutation, so that mutation just disappears. And other mutations persist and last a long time. And that's the one that we're seeing pop up in different places now um, and first seen in the UK. So this new variant is showing to be more transmissible than the old one. It's about 70% more transmissible. But from what people are seeing so far, it's not more lethal. So just because you have the new variant doesn't mean you will get more sick than somebody who has the old, um, like the original version. And um, in terms of vaccine, they haven't found any evidence that the variant is able to, uh, like the vaccine is not effective against the new variant. Uh, But again, they just don't know enough about the new variant. So All we know is it's more transmissible, but we don't know. So it spreads more. Yeah. So for the old one, it was like, if you were sick, you had the potential to pass it to an average of 2.5 other people. This one, I'm not sure how much more it is, but it's more than that. Um, and, uh, but we don't know exactly what's making it more transmissible. So is it that it's better at hiding from your immune system? So your immune system doesn't catch it as fast. And then that's how you end up passing it on to more people. Or is it that it's better at uh, getting into your cells. And that's like better at infecting your cells. And that's why it's more transmissible. Um, so we just don't know. All we know is that it's easier to pass on than the old one, which is actually more dangerous than a more lethal virus. Um, so if a virus is easier to pass on, that means the like baseline number of people who have it is so much more. And if you think of, of the virus, like the infection number is growing um, like exponentially, then it's, you know, it's like if you have five people and each person can pass it on to one person, then they pass it on to 10 people. And then if you have 10 people and each person can pass it on to, um, to one person, you end up with 20 sick. If you imagine it going up like that, a more transmissible virus makes that so much worse. But a more lethal virus means the same number of people are getting sick, but it's just, it's just yeah, exactly. So this one's actually more dangerous and it means we should um, be extra protective but there hasn't been any evidence saying that the um, vaccine is not effective against it so that's not something at least not yet to worry about um but people are obviously looking into it um yeah so that's it was that the end of the question and then
0: the last one uh, both of you can address this but we can wrap it up with this one. Um, how do we discern between good information and what we should not listen to?
4: For anyone who is trying to decipher as to what's valid and reliable information versus what is unreliable, you know, I would first look at, you know, where is this information coming from? Is it coming from reputable organizations? Uh, who's saying this? You know, are do they? What are their credentials? You know, we kind of. Um, as you, as we mentioned in in, in the in previously, you know there are these well, uh, you know, put together videos with high quality production of people who otherwise do not have the credentials to be talking about the things that they're talking about. Uh, but because it's super compelling, you know, people gravitate towards that. But it's important to just not look at the kind of the theatrics and the you know the how the content is being shared, but look at the content itself, you know, evaluate the content, who's saying it, what's being said. Does it does it align with the general consensus of, you know, scientists and uh you know public health professionals? Um and so those are some I guess tips and certain things that I would I, I would look for. Um and you know it's again it's back to uh our, you know it's also our responsibility uh to ensure that you know if people are underestimating covid-19's impact and or dismissing it that we show them the reality of what the what this virus is doing you know what it's doing to again healthy individuals young people these long term effects and it's important to us for us to also show um you know the people that are getting hit with the virus and also the capacity issues that we have in hospitals right you know the you know hospitals are at capacity you know you not taking heed of the public health warnings and putting yourself in positions where you get sick, but because, you know, you might not have previous health conditions, medical conditions, you know, you end up surviving, but you know, you know, you might take away that hospital bed from someone who is extremely vulnerable, who has multiple conditions, uh, who may not be able to, you know, get that bed. And or um, you know, in some countries we've seen earlier on the first wave, you know, their uh, you know, oxygen has been rationed. And so, you know, there are certain decisions that have to be made as to, you know, who, who would survive and who wouldn't. Uh so so all that to say that if you are not sure as to what you know whether or not information is reliable, again, I would look at these factors because, you know, you sharing that piece of content and not kind of verifying it can have again negative ramifications for not just yourself, not that individual, but for the whole of society.
0: Yeah, I guess it's just like be sure you know what your the sources are, like look into it without kind of blindly taking in that information and like fact checking is like i got probably the best way to go um but but just like now that we're at the end of it i just want to thank you both JazakAllah khairan for you know yes. joining us for this episode and you know kind of sharing all your knowledge with us and like i you guys have clearly been hard at work during this pandemic so shout out to mm-hmm. you guys <laughs> for you know doing all this work for us
4: thank you all so much for having me on the podcast it's been an absolute pleasure to be discussing these important topics and I hope that one day we're able to get back to something that's even better than what was and I hope that we continue to uplift each other. Uh, There have been many examples of just incredible human uh, compassion and I hope that we continue to be empathetic towards one another uh, through these these challenging times, inshallah. Uh, Take care. Thank you.
3: Yeah. Thanks for having us. It's so important what you guys do, like a bond in general, um, and then you know having the um, like being able to put a a more serious, I guess, information spreading episode um, is really awesome of you guys
0: so thanks oh we had that. to because um, I think we joked about it in the beginning a little too much so
3: just do, <laughs>
2: you know we have to redeem ourselves
0: if anyone listens to our first um, COVID episode where literally it's titled do we all have COVID please we don't we don't we don't express those same views anymore <laughs> well I was so funny because someone messaged yeah. us like a clip where, like, one of us was saying, like, COVID's not even <laughs> that serious. And looking back, it's so crazy because that was, like, I think in March when yeah. it was, I, I think it was even before March, actually. I think it's when, like, it was spreading, and we're just kind yeah. of like, is this virus even real?
1: It's just government propaganda. And at that point, I was like, Wallahi, there's people out here who really don't fully understand that coronavirus, it's not that serious. Yeah. It's not that serious. <laughs>
0: But times have changed, and, you know, like, we take it very seriously.
2: It's so crazy when you look back on, like, posts and tweets and stuff that we made, like, in, like, February. I think it was around February time where, like, there was people talking about it. Mm -hmm. But it's just crazy when you look back at it. And the funniest thing is that we all thought that, or at least I thought that it was gonna be over yeah, <laughs> and by the summer. I thought, okay, you know what? Summer is done. You got a new school year,s and then ended up, you know, having online, you know, classes and stuff. And I hope everybody who listens and you guys too. Like, I hope you guys are taking care of yourself at such a difficult time right now. Yeah. And you know, it's hard. Online school is really hard. And mm. stay safe as always. Absolutely, uh, yeah. You know, since we've yeah. Left.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no i hope like you know it's been a long time and like living in lockdown and people who are living alone and people who are you know struggling being yeah. like, well, like it's a really hard time and may allah make it easy for everyone and like you know shout out to all the people who are frontline workers and you know really risking their health and you know doing good work during a really uh, difficult time but again, thank you both for joining us. If you want to join the conversation, uh, please uh, consider emailing us at aboanchronicles at gmail.com or you can message us or... Whatever on Instagram or Twitter at a Bob podcast. Hafsa usually does this, so I'm like trying to remember what she says I know. Um, <laughs> but you can message us on a Bob uh, podcast, or you can just follow us to keep up with what we're doing. I think our last episode we said we're going to be dropping merch soon-ish, so also you know just to keep an eye out for that. Be sure to be following us on social media, and we launched a buy me a coffee page uh, to support us. Um, if you'd like to do that, the link will be in the description for this episode. So can. That checking that out and yeah assalamualaikum everyone and um see you guys next time yes bye bye
1: hold up wait a minute hi everyone this is your favorite one girl in the cut hafsa i just got my covid vaccine today A-a-a-a-a. and uh it wasn't that bad like you know got the jab in my arms a bit achy but then i always get an achy arm after like a flu uh, shot or whatever so that's not too shocking but Tune in tomorrow to find out uh, how this shit goes down. A few moments later. Okay, so it's about four hours after my flu shot and my arm wants to fall out of its socket. Like, I have never experienced this kind of dead arm in my life. It's it's very annoying, but hopefully it goes away and I can go to bed because I have work in the morning. Early the next morning surprise surprise it's 8 a.m the next day and i only had three hours of sleep last night because my arm was acting like a beep (laughs) um i'm gonna go into work today but um i have this horrible headache i hope it's just coincidence and i'm not catching covid because this is how my last bout of covid started
4: much 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 later
1: hey cutie patooties um yeah so i'm still feeling the headache is not going away just gonna take some uh paracetamol panadol tylenol, whatever you call in your part of the world and hope that it goes i'm feeling a bit achy but um like body aches and stuff but um let's just see let me i'm gonna give myself a few hours and see how this goes later that same evening okay guys so it's been about 24 hours it's 7 p.m the next day um and i feel fine my arm is still a little bit sore but no fever ache, chills headache none of that stuff I feel good, you know, keeping hydrated, doing my thing. Get your COVID vaccine, folks.